Today, we're talking a ton of stories that have to do with ideas to keep in mind when you're opening your own restaurant. That's right, all the stories I want to cover today fall into a very specific theme, everything from copying styles to soft openings, HR, and even finding investors. Coming up. Welcome back to the show, folks. My name's Justin Kana, and this is episode 44 of The Emulsion, a show where I talk all about the news stories that matter to me as I navigate my career as a professional chef. Thank you so much for joining in. We're going to get right into it in a second, but as per usual, this show is entirely supported by you folks. We have no sponsors, no ads, no nothing, and because of that freedom, I'm eternally grateful to you guys. So if you like this show, if you've gotten any value from it, I have an ask for you. I would love for you to go to patreon.com slash justincana. You can support this show and all of the content that I do for as little as just $1 per month. And that family is growing slowly but surely. I have big plans for that platform in 2018. Uh, Stoked to make a video announcing all of those things for you guys. But without further ado, let's get into this show. Today's beverage, I've had... uh, I took a day off coffee yesterday. I uh, finally had some coffee again today, but again, as I was saying before the live stream, I've been sick, so I've been trying to stick to some high-quality H2O. I should actually be having tea right now, but I am not, which is unfortunate, but that's okay. I've been sticking to a, a diet of water and, and these cough drops, which have been surprisingly good, suppressing my cough, but I want to hopefully make it through today's show without hacking up a lung for you guys. So the first story today comes out of New York City, Williamsburg uh, specifically, where there's a hotel restaurant that's making headlines because of its diverse menu and unique approach to food. So it's called Reynard, and Ryan Sutton, who we've covered on this show a couple times before, just published his review on the place. He gave it three stars out of four, but there's a principle in this story that I want to highlight because uh, I think it's something that might help some of you as you kind of navigate what's next. And That has to do with uh, copying concepts, not necessarily copying in the traditional sense where you're kind of like stealing the exact thing that everybody's doing, uh, but more so just taking things that you see that the market is already interested in. Uh, So what's up with the food? Let's cover the food first. So Christina Leckie, who was formerly at April Bloomfield's Michelin star restaurant, The Breslin, has an interesting element of fusion with the food at at Reynard. So it is a brunch spot. Uh, They they serve dinner as well, but it takes advantage of a wood fire hearth uh, style cooking, which we've seen surge in popularity with places like uh, Cezanne and uh, Asador Echibari thrusting it into the spotlight, getting Michelin stars and spots in the world's 50 best list, and then restaurants like Single Thread and Smith and now Reynard taking inspiration and building their food around this kind of fire-touched food. So Reynard isn't new in and of itself. It's been open for six years, so why are we just hearing about it now? I'm going to quote the article now, and this is important. I want you to pay attention to these five, these words. So five years later, Reynard has earned its patina. The dining room feels like a refuge from the neighborhood's current state of Disneyfication, with more and more exorbitant apartment buildings of glass and steel choking up the skyline and with proliferating street mural adverts commissioned by the likes of Spotify, Microsoft, Delta, and Tinder. The food, with its service-included pricing, now deserves its own narrative. It finally wows. Lucky's all-day American fare makes hearth cooking feel like the primal, yet studied, act of deliciousness it should be. 
Rather than the performative and pedestrian act it's become in too many restaurants installing Cadillac grills. Her creations, more gutsy than gut-bustling, are lighter and brighter than much of what she put out at the Breslin, with no fatty steaks for two, with acid use strategically, and with the flavor of fire feeling more like a subtle background note than an overwhelming act of quasi-barbecue." End quote. And the food sounds pretty bomb, actually. Pig face with lettuce wraps and pickled jalapenos and pita bread with togarashi uh, that you dip into uh, uni on the half shell. And even going into the brunch menu with ham with ahi dulce peppers and collard greens and poached eggs. And then for dessert, they have a coconut meringue with lime curd. I'm like waiting to make a reservation right now. But what are some takeaways for me from a, a review like this? He gave it three out of uh, four stars, which is something that he doesn't always do lately. So price, that's the first thing I want to talk about. I want to go a little bit deeper with stories like this to talk about price with you guys because it's one of the most mystifying elements as you kind of grow up as a chef in the industry, right? Like when you're just a line cook, you don't really have to worry about food cost as much. But then when you get thrown into the sous chef position, all of a sudden everyone's asking you like, how much do we charge for this, right? Which is something that uh, I want to pass along to you guys. And if you guys have any questions on it, I certainly want you guys to ask, but like, how do you present a dish uh, and, and and know what those margins are? I think the price point on a lot of these dishes is really smart. She's taking uh, a lot of these kind of off-cuts and not-so-popular proteins and using fire and some well-known techniques to kind of elevate them, right? So the starters are between $13 and $21. Mains are between $26 and $39. And desserts are cheap. They're at between $7 and $13. Bucks. So now you might be saying, Justin, $35 for a main course is a lot. But you also have to think about the fact that service is included with these prices, so what you see is what you pay, and that also ensures all of their staff gets a living wage. Living, living in New York City is definitely not cheap, but that's great to see. But essentially what that means is if they're operating at like a 25% food cost, for a $28 dish, $7 of that is being spent on food. Does that make sense? So like a quarter of 28 is 7 And as far uh, as, far as uh, what that service charge includes, I did a little bit digging um, into that policy because I wanted to see what the actual percentage was. I know here in Seattle uh, at the places that will normally typically include service, it's normally around 20%, but they're actually a part of this super interesting project called the Gratuity Free Movement, where you can look for a logo on their menu, and if that uh, menu has that logo, that business is part of the community, and there's no need or expectation to tip. So there's a little nugget of knowledge for you folks there. I had never seen that before. But uh, takeaway number two creating something new isn't always necessary, right? When I talk about things like other restaurants having the hearth-style cooking before Reynard, it could be seen as a bad thing, right? Like, however, I don't necessarily believe that. There's incredible value to being the second adopter, right? To, to, to improve on something that the market is already telling you that they like. And people like walking in and seeing that fire. There's a very human element with that fire-touched flavor that we just like. I mean, the best meal I had this year was at Echibari in January. There's that, that was no doubt a huge inspiration for me. But who says it has to be the pricey tasting menu spots that can take advantage of that kind of cooking? I, 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 but it, and it's not to say that it's, it's always good, right? I literally had a meal here in Seattle the other day that had a very similar hearth-style setup, and the menu was not good. The food was not good. I mean, it, it absolutely shows some skill to be able to cook like that. And it's one of the reasons why they can take these humble ingredients like squash and use fire and some technique and then charge $38 for a dish, right? So have any of you been to Reynard yet? Are, are any of you in New York City or in Brooklyn? 
and uh, have had the pleasure of going, let me know in the comments. So I would I would love to know what you you thought of the of the place. I'm gonna be um, keeping my eye out for for other opportunities. Cooking over fire is one of my favorite things to do, but I'd be interested to know if any of you guys have had a chance to experience it yet or have even heard of the place yet. This is the first time it came on my radar. So next up, I have to update the Mario Batali slash booming sexual harassment news we covered last week. Uh, my friend and one of you listeners, Signy, suggested I also cover the April Bloomfield news too, so let's talk about it, shall we? So Mario sent out an apology email saying sorry, but the uh, biggest thing that drove the internet crazy was that he left a pizza dough cinnamon roll recipe at the bottom of the email. Lols. What are you doing, dude? But regardless, he's officially off of the ABC uh, TV network. It's going to be interesting to see where his career goes. He's definitely in that kind of like Paula Dean phase right now where no one really wants to work with him. But it is possible to see a comeback eventually. But the entire situation with him right now is just kind of sad. People saying his apology was tone deaf. It, it, was, it, it was not really reflective of a man who actually wants to change. Um, I personally think it's a combination of a few things. He needed to say these kind of things just for the record, like to make it known that he did indeed apologize, but he is also super aware that in this current climate and with all these allegations coming forward, even if you crafted the most elaborate letter imaginable, no one is going to be like, yeah, okay, we forgive you, right? So like this kind of screw up takes years of trust building to repair and even then it might not do the trick, so we all just kind of have to unfortunately watch and see what happens i'm personally interested to see what happens to his restaurants and then even more that uh Italy empire that he is a part of but uh and delving into the story a little bit deeper to top it off and to kind of add to the entire story in and of itself april bloomfield and her restaurant the spotted pig are now under fire pulling into the equation a man named ken friedman who is a restaurateur who would often sexually harass and assault uh, women in, in in the Spotted Pig, as noted by 10 women who have come forward with accusations. So to t kind of tie both of these stories together, Friedman would also let Batali perform these kinds of acts inside the Spotted Pig in random parties or after service or in the kitchen, also in a room that's literally being called the Rape Room, which is just terrifying. It's apparently on the third floor of the, 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 the restaurant space. But the part of this story that stands out to me has to do with the motivation behind it all, right? So Friedman was known for having a partying culture in the restaurant, but he also had a reputation of blacklisting people. So by firing them or harassing them over the phone, text, and email. And again, if you want more detail or you want to go deeper on this story, this goes into extreme detail in the New York Times article that I have linked up in the show notes for you guys. But it's insane to see these institutions that I grew up admiring and chefs that have been kind of bedrocks of the industry just getting derailed uh, at the top at the drop of a hat, right? It's it, it's it's no doubt that it's it's not going to be the last story of its kind that I'm going to cover, and it's not going to be the last one that you hear about. Uh, I just want you guys to be super aware of these stories, not only to protect yourself. Uh, but to know how far is too far, right? Like we've all been in this industry. There's lots of pressure. A lot of people that work in the industry are single or young because so much of your time has to be dedicated to the restaurant. So you essentially have a lot of like adrenaline high single people running around together, often indulging in controlled substances. There's bound to be something that happens. But what's important to notice here is the difference between consensual interaction and this kind of embarrassment or demeaning or threatening or fearful interaction that happens. And that's when it becomes not okay and where I want this kind of small community to be aware 
of that and pioneer it going forward. It's that classic kind of like if you see something, say something style of observation and just employing that platinum rule that I've covered so many times on this show, which is treat people how they want to be treated, not how you would want to be treated, right? So hopefully we can put that to bed. Um, again, it, I've, I've left some resources if you guys want to dig a little bit deeper and just kind of see what's happening in in, in the in the all of these stories that are coming forward. I will continue to cover these as as they surface because I do think that it's important to talk about. I don't necessarily feel like it is for a lot of you maybe feeling like I'm beating a dead horse with a lot of these stories, but it's again something that I don't want to stop talking about because it is so serious and it is kind of this revolution that we're going through. I have no doubt that when Kitchen Confidential came out, there was a lot of very similar feelings that were coming out towards uh, chefs with practices that weren't exactly kosher. But it's something that I want to continue to cover just to, to, to hammer it all home for all of you. And I, I know that a lot of you are joining this or, or maybe seeing the show for the first time. And I want to make sure that uh, we, we make all of that very, very clear for everyone involved. So next up, a quickie update on the David Chang in LA story that we covered a few weeks back. The restaurant is going to be called Major Domo. So that adds to his repertoire of uh, Momofuku-style places. Again, like we covered the other day, it's not going to be Momofuku-style food. And also, again, it will not be opening until 2018, but it is in the news because they did decide on a name, and the team does have their first event planned. It is called Potluck LA, and it's going to be featuring uh, a bunch of different people, from Adam Perry Lang to Roy Choi to Wolfgang Puck and more. Uh, it is essentially a potluck. All of the profits uh, from any ticket sales are going straight into uh, Jose Andreas's World Central Kitchen, which is a nonprofit that's been definitely making insane moves to help the people from Puerto Rico to the fires in California. He's really making some great waves in that sector. So just a uh, heads up if you're in LA and want to eat out for a great cause, that is a thing. Uh, Franco says, I should check out the Nomad LA opening soon. Let us see if we can just uh, do some search on that. I have heard of that, uh, Nomad LA, Nomad LA says, let's see if we can find it. Sorry guys, I'm sick. I'm all sniffly. So the Nomad Hotel Los Angeles, it is seeing, let's see. Guys, I've never been to LA. Is that weird? Building upon the celebrated Nomad in New York, the first restaurant outside of their hometown, this is really, really smart. Um, anchored in their approach to both cuisine and hospitality, the restaurants are refined yet approachable, com com complemented by a world-class wine program. Reservations will be available soon. Does anybody know when this place is going to be opening? Oh, there's also a food truck tab. The Nomad Truck uh, premiered. They've collaborated with some favorite chefs in LA. Each month, a different chef or team created their take on our chicken burger. Uh, they're donating all the proceeds to each chef's chosen charity. So they have a bunch of different options. There's a lobby, the bar, the coffee bar, the mezzanine, the rooftop, and the food truck. Uh, still listing Daniel Hume and Will Godara as the uh, main people in it. Jeffrey Toscarella is the director of operations. And Chris Flint is going to be working as the chef. Interesting, interesting, interesting. So that's very cool. Um, food looks great in typical 11 Madison Park fashion. It is definitely a concept that's going to do well in LA. I'm super excited I could include that quick uh, story for you if you're interested in that in any way, shape, or form. 
again, I'd be interested. I, I, I know that the food scene in LA is fascinating. I'm uh, so close. I need to, flights from Seattle are super cheap, so I definitely need to make it down there eventually. I need a compelling excuse to go down there instead of just uh, eating a bunch of uh, eating a bunch of food. Um, so I need to I need to plan a pop up down there is what I actually need to do. So next up is a story from a concept that I'm kind of pissed off I didn't come up with myself. Uh, Danny Meyer has a new concept in New York City called Vini e Fritti, and it is exactly what it sounds like. It's wine and fried stuff. So the critic, again, Ryan Sutton here, saying the place, quote, might be the most enjoyable concept Meyer has come to open in 2017. It doesn't have the this might soon be a chain kind of feel, and his counter-service pizzeria in the East Village uh, kind of conveys that. With Vini e Fritti, the food comes out about as fast as that. It is not nearly as pricey as his rebooted Union Square Cafe, although some of the preparations feel just as ambitious. And it's not fast casual. There are waiters and bartenders, even though it doesn't evoke a proper restaurant as much as it does a tapas spot in Madrid, with no one upselling you to a full meal, end quote. So food, uh, stuff on the menu includes stuff like Frito Misto and tempura fried delicata squash rings and potato latkes and stracciatella on toasted bread and even sous vide and then deep fried pork ribs make for an experience that people seem to really like. It's just another testament to the idea that you don't have to go the traditional restaurant route if you just really love a certain thing, right? Like if you're really passionate about the idea of just people coming in, having a glass of wine, hanging out and standing at tables, that's what you should do. It's just so funny for me to hear about this kind of concept doing well. It just goes back to the idea that food is like fashion. It just ebbs and flows. I mean, I, I personally think that 36 months ago, if you told any of us that you wanted to open a fried food spot that served food like tapas, everyone would kind of roll their eyes at you. But this is doing really well. And I just feel like the tapas concept of eating out has gotten kind of like so bastardized over the years that people miss the original concept where if you go to Spain, it's all about having like a little glass of wine and eating salty and crispy and briny things and just standing around with friends and having a good time. Uh, the industry seems to find things that people like and twist them out of what they're originally meant to be and ruin them. And then comes along someone that sticks to the origin of what makes a style so special and then kills it. So bravo to Danny Meyer and the team. So speaking of restaurant concepts, and this kind of all ties back into the theme of this show about things to keep in mind when you're opening your own place, Eater published an article where they interviewed some of the investors backing these new restaurants. A lot of them are coming out of New York and San Francisco, so just be aware of that. They cover uh, L. Catterton, Rourke, and Caperly, if I'm saying that right, all investors that have been in the game because of a really interesting statistic. In, 27, in 2015, that was apparently the first time in history that people in the U.S. spent more money dining out than buying groceries. And it doesn't show trends of going the other way. All of these guys are in larger funds, uh, more venture capital-backed uh, style funds, where like Danny Meyer's Enlightened Hospitality Investments and Greg Golkin's The Kitchen Fund. So what does this mean for chefs and restaurateurs? It means you don't start with one spot, right? Like your one restaurant that you start with, and then max out, you're totally full every single day, and then you plan a second one, right? You approach these these funds, these investors with a concept, you prove that it can scale, and then a firm like the Kitchen Fund will write you a single digit millions check. And with that, you get so much more, right? The article saying that, quote, it's the circle of the Union Square Hospitality Group partners, which gives clients huge leverage 
in terms of access to real estate and branding and marketing and legal and supply chain resources that might be critical to growing a brand, end quote. However, uh, it's not always that easy, and you and I know that, but the article articulates this very well, quoting Inde Ratnam, who is the owner of a healthy Indian fast casual spot, saying, quote, that's because restaurants are unique animals built by people and fueled not only by quality of food, but this intangible concept known as hospitality. Restaurants are very different than retail concepts. We are not just opening doors and putting things on racks and saying, here, spend your money. This is not clothing, and investors need to realize that. It says, what Ratnam fears is a race to scale without the infrastructure to support operations and hospitality. He says, quote, with so much more money pouring into this space, you may see a lot of failures. It is important to take the hospitality and food service elements seriously. The customer experience is intricately, in, why can't I say that word, tied to your success. You need evangelizers. You need a tribe waiting online for your food every day, and you can't reverse engineer that, end quote. So overall, and again, another concept I want all of you to think about is not just the Reynards or the Sanchezes of the world, right? But maybe thinking about reaching more people or scaling. Is is that more your path? And that's my ultimate question of the day for you folks. Do you guys want a single restaurant? Do you guys want an empire? Do you guys want a franchise? Or maybe something completely different. I Like, share your dreams. Let me know. I want to know where your head's at right now. And don't worry if it changes. Uh, I mean, I'll go first. I wanted a three-star in Chicago once upon a time. And now I'm not even thinking about a restaurant, and it's because of all this education and real world, real world experience that I came to these conclusions. But again, comment at me. I promise I read every single one of your guys' comments, so I'm interested to see what you guys have to say. So last up, and you know, uh, you guys know I have to talk about it. It is our non-industry story, and it has to be The Last Jedi, the new Star Wars I've been waiting for forever, and despite the kind of negative criticisms that it's been getting from the super fans, I personally loved it. It was definitely more of a standalone movie than a continuation of The Force Awakens, which is one thing that people are kind of pissed off about. But The Force Awakens was literally a direct parallel plot to A New Hope, so they had to deviate to something new. Otherwise, they would have just ended up uh, making another episode five. So, did you guys see the new Star Wars? I won't spoil it for you, but if you are a Luke Skywalker fan, I would 100% recommend it. I saw it on opening night. I will be traveling back to Wisconsin this week, and I always go out to the movies on Christmas Day. So, I will be seeing it again because I'm just that big of a fan. But uh, speaking of being back in Wisconsin, I will be traveling through Chicago. If there's anyone or any restaurant you guys want me to uh, include in this podcast, I would love uh, for you to let me know in the comments. I will work on making that happen. If there's anybody that you guys want advice from or someone you know or a restaurant you want to hear more about, uh, I want to work for you guys while I'm on holiday, so leave those requests in the comments. I've already got an interview scheduled for Thursday, so stay tuned for that, uh, just to hype that up a little bit for everyone that's watched this far into the live stream. So with that, this has been episode 44 of The Emulsion. Thank you so much for listening. Quick little reminder before you take off, if you want to support this or any of the other content I do for as little as $1 per month, uh... Oh, sorry. Anthony, you, you screwed me up. Uh, that is less than... What is it less than? It's less than this chapstick, actually. This chapstick was uh, super, super uh, expensive. But I would love for you to check out my page on Patreon. There you can support all of the content that I do for as little as $1 per month. Um, I'm going to build out that platform an insane amount in uh, 2018. I'm super pumped for that. Um, if you can't swing that right now, go ahead and, uh, head over to justinconna.com and sign up for my newsletter. That's also something I'm building out to be amazing 
in uh, 2018 for you guys. If you guys have stories that you see in your newsfeed or when you're scrolling through Twitter or a photo you see on Instagram that you want me to cover, I'm happy to do that. Shoot it to me on Twitter and hashtag the emulsion so I can find those stories. Uh, subscribe here on YouTube if you aren't already. Uh, definitely leave a thumbs up on this video or consider leaving a review on iTunes if you listen there. Regardless of where you are, I definitely appreciate your ears. So thank you so much. Uh, my name is Justin Kana. Have a good one.